As I wrote about in the Bulletin article, what an absolutely incredible, insightful, and eye-opening presentation we had by Brother Wayne Barrier last Sunday night as our Sunday evening lesson. He talked about a lot of the missionaries and how they have a life and death risk, a life and death risk, literally, when they preach the gospel, when they do what we have the absolute and utter freedom to do every day, every minute. A privilege and a freedom that we sometimes take for granted or just don't bother with, and that is to tell people about Jesus, to talk to them about him with no risk to our health and well-being for so doing. We have that freedom to talk to people about Jesus, to do so without fear of persecution, without fear of governmental interruption because of what this country is getting to, ready to celebrate this coming Thursday, July the 4th. And that is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That is a day that our nation celebrates their independence from a power that they believed had robbed them of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to put it in their words, for years. They declared their independence, and we celebrate that declaration as they saw an oppressor who had taken their treasures and basically taxed them to death. And so they declared their independence from that death grip, from that oppressor, and they fought for the freedoms that you and I enjoy today, including our freedom to be in this building and to worship God, as we read about in the scriptures, without fear of governmental persecution. But it would wind up costing them a lot more than we often care to remember, than we often do remember, and indeed it would cost them a lot more than even some of our textbooks today would indicate. I want to read to you from a fabulous book, a few excerpts. The book is called The Rebirth of America, copyright 1986 by Arthur DeMoss Foundation. On July the 4th, 1776, there was signed in the city of Philadelphia one of America's historic documents, the Declaration of Independence. It marked the birth of this nation, which under God was destined for world leadership. We often forget that in declaring independence from an earthly power, our forefathers made a forthright declaration of dependence upon Almighty God. The closing words of this document solemnly declare, quote, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, unquote. The 56 courageous men who signed that document understood that this was not just high-sounding rhetoric. They knew that if they succeeded, if they succeeded, the best that they could expect would be years of hardship in a struggling new nation. If they lost, they would face a hangman's noose 
as traitors. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve of the 56 had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked, looted, occupied by the enemy, or burned. Two of them lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its bullets. Whatever ideas you have of the men who met that hot summer in Philadelphia, it is important that we remember certain facts about the men who made this pledge. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. They were men of means. They were rich men, most of them, who enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal lives. These were not hungry men, but prosperous men, wealthy landowners, substantially secure in their prosperity and respected in their communities. But they considered liberty much more important than the security they enjoyed, and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Little did John Quincy Adams know how significant his words would be when he spoke to his wife, Abigail, on the passing of the Declaration of Independence, saying, I am well aware of the toil and the blood and the treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means. They fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price. And freedom was won. Someone is said to be born free is a privilege. To die free is an awesome responsibility. Yet freedom is never free. It is always purchased at great cost. And again, as I, as I read that and I think about it, and I, I, I have ingrained that, that these were, were men who were well-respected in their communities. They were rich men. They were men that had everything to lose. And as I, I read that, you might have brought to your mind, maybe if you visited some of these old mansions in different places, maybe you thought of some of those colonial mansions or, or maybe scenes from movies like The Patriot came to your mind, or maybe you thought of some of these these depictions of these men and the vast amounts of money that some of these pioneers had, some of these colonial businessmen had amassed in the new world, but they were willing to put it all on the line and many of them lost everything to secure our freedom. Now as I think about that, as I consider that physical, earthly situation I've described, I'm reminded of an infinitely far greater, an infinitely far more unimaginable sacrifice. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who came to fight for our freedom on a much larger level. Jesus Christ, who came to fight for yours and my freedom from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus, who came to fight for our freedom 
from that which robs us of eternal life, true liberty, and the possession of happiness. Jesus Christ, who came to fight for your freedom and my freedom from a grim and cruel oppressor, a cruel oppressor from whom we had nowhere to run and no way of escape. I want you to consider with me what Jesus gave up. We've talked about these men as a physical illustration and some of the riches they gave up, but I want you to think with me for a minute about what Jesus came up, Jesus gave up in order to come to this earth and fight for our independence from sin, from death, from eternity in hell. I really don't know how unbelievably beautiful heaven must be. We sing the song. I, I don't know exactly how beautiful and magnificent heaven really and truly is. I don't. I don't think any of us do. I don't necessarily believe that the gates are literally a single pearl, literally, actually a single pearl. I don't necessarily believe that the city is literally, actually made of pure gold or that the street is either. What I do know is that the Apostle John did literally have a vision of heaven that included those things. Yes, he had a vision. He literally did have a vision. But it was exactly that. It was a, it was a vision. I'm still not sure exactly what heaven is exactly like because here's the thing, brethren. I don't believe that heaven is like anything else in all of creation. There's some things that you can't say. You know how sometimes when you try a different kind of meat or something, everybody says, oh, it tastes like chicken, right? Because we all know what chicken tastes like, right? But I don't think we can get our minds around what heaven is truly like because heaven is not like anything else in all of creation. It's where God lives. It's where the king dwells in unapproachable light. I don't think it's like anything else at all. I don't believe there's anything else in all of creation that can compare to heaven. So it's not like literally, actually, physically that. You know, gold is very precious to us and pearls are, and so I believe that in this, this vision that, that God is using figurative language to, to tell John, look, it's the most incredible, valuable thing you can possibly imagine. That's just the gates of the pavement. How beautiful heaven must be. Did you ever notice how Jesus never painted us a literal, physical picture of heaven? Did you notice that? In all of his teachings, Jesus never told us exactly, literally, what heaven looks and feels like. But he knew. He knew. Because that was his home. That was his home. Why do you suppose he never come right out and literally, literally described in great detail how heaven actually is? I believe it's because the human mind can't even begin to get around to comprehend what God has prepared for those who love him, for those who keep his commandments. I don't believe we can. I believe that like the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6, 14 and 16, and no human mind can truly comprehend the magnificence of heaven. And like Moses, we must have our gaze, as it were, shielded, 
of both God in all his glory and heaven in all of its, because we can't begin to get there. In fact, you remember where Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In that very statement, Jesus told Nicodemus, who was a religious man and, and a member of, a, of this, this council, he told Nicodemus, he said, you're not getting it when I talk to you in earthly illustrations. How would you possibly understand if I told you heavenly things? When I think of heaven and how beautiful it must be, my own thoughts, it's just my opinion, my own thoughts, the way I like to think about it is this. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He's been gone nearly 2,000 years. If God, not if God, God, God created all of the beauty that we see. If you've seen the Grand Canyon, if you've seen the Rocky Mountains, if you've seen this, this beautiful creation, if you've seen the Pacific Ocean and, and all of the marvels and wonder, look up into the night sky and all of the beauty that God created in what? In six days. Can you imagine what he can create in 2,000 years? He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And that's kind of the way I like to think of heaven and I can't get my mind around how beautiful it is at all. But in addition to not being able to comprehend what heaven is like, that home, I can't begin to imagine what equality is God, with God is like. Can you, can you get your mind around what it would be like to be equal with God? To be eternal? To be all-powerful? To be totally above the reach of sin and sickness and death and Satan? No, I, I can't. I, I can't I can't. My mind's not that big. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus knew those things. Jesus was those things. Jesus personally and firsthand knows and knew what heaven was like. He knows and knew what equality with God was like. And the scripture says that to come down here to fight for our freedom, he put that all behind him. He was willing to give up all of that come down here to pay for my sin. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Look at verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Verse 7 but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He gave up equality with God to come down here for you and I. He gave up those streets, whatever they're made of. He gave it all up. You want to talk about great cost? As we talk about these men, and I don't mean to demean what they gave up to, to sign that Declaration of Independence and to fight. I, I, don't, I don't demean at all or diminish what they gave up, but Jesus gave up so much more to fight for our spiritual freedom. John Quincy Adams said he did not truly know the full and exact extent of the sacrifice that it was going to take in toil and blood and treasure to gain 
and then maintain our national freedom. But the fact is that Jesus Christ knew before time began the exact amount of blood of his and toil of his and treasure of his that it was going to take to gain and maintain our spiritual freedom. He knew before time began, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 and chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. And Jesus Christ, knowing every drop of blood, every ounce of toil, and everything he'd have to give up to come and fight, was willing to pay every last drop of it for you, for me, to set us free. While the early American colonists were forced to live under severely oppressive laws which demanded far more than was fair in their eyes, the fact is that humanity has been forced to live under an infinitely far more demanding law, one which demanded everything including our eternal souls. Think about that. Romans chapter 8 and verse 2 indicates to us that Jesus Christ came to this earth to set us free from the law of sin and death. A law that simply said, you sin, you die. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, both of them. You sin, you die, die, you're separated from God. That's the law of sin and death. But Jesus left his home in heaven, his throne in glory, immortality and the inability to die, and yes, even equality with God itself to come to earth to fight Satan for you and me. Jesus began that fatal fight with a declaration that that's what he came for. Jesus began that fatal fight with a declaration that he had indeed come to give us liberty and freedom. Turn to me in your Bibles to Luke 4 and we'll see it. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized and begun his public ministry. And after that, he's been tempted by the devil. In Luke chapter 4, the first part. Then he comes back to Nazareth, it says in verse 16, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This is the very beginning part of his ministry, the very start, pretty much. And he was handed the book of Isaiah, and when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, verse 18. Watch this, watch this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus makes a declaration when he first comes that he is here to give us independence, that he is to here to set us at liberty from our oppressor, that oppressor of sin and death. Now, as soon as Jesus makes this declaration, right here in, that we just read, the heat gets turned up. As soon as he makes that declaration, 
Everything heats up. The enemy heats up. All of this does. As soon as he made the declaration, the hordes of hell began to intensify their efforts to thwart him. If you look at this very text, right at the end of this account encounter here in Luke 4, right just at the end of the encounter in verses 28 and 9, they're ready to kill him. That didn't take long, did it? The war has started. And the battle is on. Just like soon after the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th in 1776, Great Britain would waste no time sending more ships, troops, and weaponry to seek to conquer and inflict a very heavy toll on the colonists who were fighting for their freedom in a very similar way. After Jesus made this declaration of what he was here for, all of the sudden, he starts being chased and challenged and threatened with death at every turn. As Satan turned up the heat to keep you and I enslaved to the law of sin and death. The battle raged. For three and a half years, Jesus Christ fought. He fought against sin and Satan on every battlefield in front that he encountered them. And then Jesus, the end of that campaign for our freedom, as a part of his victory strategy, this is just so unimaginable, as, as a part of his victory strategy, Jesus Christ voluntarily allowed himself to be captured at the Battle of Gethsemane. He allowed himself to be tortured after and as a result of the Battle of Pilate versus the people. And he was finally wounded, fatally wounded, at the Battle of Golgotha. Brethren, freedom's never free. Never, ever, ever. It's never free to obtain, nor is it free to maintain. You know, as 21st century Americans, sometimes, and, and I appreciated the comments this morning in the prayer about the air conditioner, <laughs> but you know, as 21st century Christians and all that we have, and as, as well off as we are in this country, and the AC, and all the amenities and things that we have, it's easy for us sometimes to forget the toil and the blood and the treasure that it took to give us the freedom to even be here this morning. It's easy to forget that in reality. The price it took to originally obtain and daily takes to maintain those freedoms we so often take for granted for some, for some people coming up on the 4th, the 4th of July is just another holiday. Hey, got a day off from work. It's a day to go drink and party and barbecue and do whatever. That's all it is. It could be brick wall day to some people for all they care. They've lost the intensity of what it means and forgotten the true price and toil and blood and treasure it took. For example, let me just give you this thought. Talk about people forgetting the reality of some things. Look at fireworks. Stop and think about this. 
People go and they buy fireworks and they're pretty in the sky and I have no problem. We were coming back last night through Tulsa and they were shooting them off over the ball field. I don't have a problem with fireworks. They were pretty. Of course, all the brake lights around, you have to be careful, right? But, you know, I got nothing against fireworks. But stop and think about what those, originally those were not pretty. Originally those were not things designed for entertainment. People were dying as a result of those sounds and those sparks and those lights. Those were about bombs dropping on the people's houses down the road from you as the sound got closer. Those were about broken bodies. Those were about destroyed homes. Those were about people laying and dying as the bombs dropped. We must never forget or take for granted the price that was paid for our freedom. That's why I'm so grateful for this wall out here. I don't know whose idea that was or how many years it's been there, but it's a wonderful thing. But by the same token, as 21st century Christians, it's also easy to forget at times if we're not careful the incredible price it took to obtain our freedom, John 3:16, but to also maintain our freedom, 1 John 1 and verse 7. This freedom that we enjoy in Christ Jesus to gather about this table and to think about what Jesus did for us. But, the, but, but there are some folks who, Sunday's nothing special, it's just another day off from work. It's a day to, to go out on, on the boat or to sleep in or to do whatever. Because this has lost its intensity. People forget the actual price that was paid. It's not special to them. It doesn't mean anything. You recall the John Adams quote that I read a few minutes ago where he said, through the gloom he could see the rays of light and glory and how at the end it would be more than worth all the means. Remember, that was what John Quincy Adams wrote. Did you know that Jesus Christ viewed his coming to fight for our freedom, spiritually speaking, very similarly? Jesus Christ knew way before he ever came, way before he came to declare that he was fighting for our independence, to set us free, to give us liberty, God declared centuries earlier that you were worth the cost, that I was worth the price. Over 700 years prior to his declaration of war in the fight to win our freedom from sin and death, God proclaimed how it would be more than worth everything it cost him. Look with me in Isaiah 53 and you'll see this. Isaiah 53. Look at verses 10 through 12. Speaking of Jesus' sacrifice, look what it says. Isaiah 53, let's begin at verse 10. We're all pretty familiar probably with the first part of the chapter. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What does that mean? It means that Jesus knew before he ever came that in the end it would be worth it all because he would see the outcome. He would see people saved from hell. And you know what? He could see that light and that glory and it made it all worth it to him. Jesus Christ 
knew that you and I were worth to him whatever war or pain or hell or personal sacrifice he had to endure in order to set us free, Hebrews 12, verse 2. And so Jesus Christ won that final battle. He won it decisively. He was victorious over sin at the Battle of Hades, after which he arose, having won it all. He won over sin and Satan. He won over even death itself. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. He won the victory even over death. He won. But just like those who would enjoy the freedoms, take advantage of the great freedoms that our physical forefathers fought and died to obtain for us as we live in this country, just like they must come to America in order to enjoy those freedoms that we do, those who wish to enjoy the freedom from the law of sin and death, which Jesus came to fight for for us, must come to live in Christ Jesus our Lord as well, because that's where the freedom is, in Christ Jesus. They must come to Christ through the proper and divinely designated channels. There are no illegal immigrants in Christ. There's only one way in. We must learn of him. As we learn of him, we learn that the only way to take advantage of the benefits of his blood sacrifice to set us free from the law which was held as captive is to be in Christ. Look in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 and 2. The only way to take advantage of his benefits is to get into Christ. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, notice it's in again, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Just like people need to come and live in America to benefit from its freedoms, people must come to live in Christ to benefit from this freedom from the law of sin and death. We understand, of course, and no, this is not the invitation, we understand, of course, that we can only get into Christ when we are baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Galatians 3, 26 and 7. But I want us to think about baptism for a moment. In this context we're talking today, baptism, as we, as we repent, change our mind, turn to God, we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Baptism for the forgiveness of our sins is where we declare our independence. Baptism into Christ for the forgiveness of sins is where we take advantage of the victory that Jesus won in that fight. Baptism for the forgiveness of our sins is where we declare our independence. We declare to sin and Satan that we are no longer going to serve them. We declare to sin and Satan that we are no longer going to be held captive. We declare to sin and Satan that we're no longer going to be a prisoner of war. We're done. They're not going to oppress us anymore. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins when we rise to walk in newness of life is where we declare our independence from all of that because of the victory that Jesus won for us. But here's the thing. Just because we declare our independence from sin and Satan and therefore declare our full dependence on God 
That doesn't mean our battle against the forces of sin and evil are at that moment finally over. It just means that the enemy is going to unleash even more to try to get us back. Think about this. Jesus came and died to obtain our freedom. Absolutely true. But once we've declared our independence from sin, in the waters of Christian baptism and risen to walk in newness of life, we must fight every day to maintain that freedom that we now have. Jesus won the battle to obtain it, but we must fight to maintain it. Because the forces of evil are not just going to walk away. Satan's not just going to walk away and give up. Consider with me an illustration from American history. Think about this. What happened after the Revolutionary War? What happened after the war was over and America had gained her independence? Remember what happened about 30 years later? The War of 1812. What was the War of 1812 over? I'll tell you what the War of 1812 was over. What led to the War of 1812 was that Great Britain was still not ready to say that America was her own country. She was taking our sailors at sea and saying, you're still British citizens. She wasn't recognizing our independence. Great Britain was still saying, you're still ours. And so America went to war, War of 1812. She had to maintain the freedom she had obtained. It's the same with us. Once we've obtained our freedom by Christ's sacrifice and we've been born again of the water and the spirit to walk in newness of life and we have freedom from the law of sin and death, Satan's not just going to quit. Christians, you guys that have been Christians for a lot of years, you understand this, right? Satan still wants you. He's still going to fight. And so guess what? You still got to fight to maintain the freedom that Christ obtained for you. That fight is never over even though you've got it. Think about this. Happened with Jesus. In Luke 4.13, after Satan lost the battle to get Jesus to fall to temptation, it says that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus won that battle, but Satan was going to take another round at him when he got the opportunity. Going to do the same thing to us when we come up out of those waters. American history continues. After the War of 1812 came the Civil War. Families torn in two, brother versus brother, the Civil War. Nothing civil about it. Sometimes even once set free, as New Testament Christians, we will go through a civil war or two within the congregation that we're in. Sometimes brother versus brother in the church happens too. It shouldn't, but it does. Sometimes we have to endure a bloody civil war in the congregation that we're in. But the worst possible thing we can do is flee the church. What we need to do is to fight to maintain biblical unity, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. You know, we must continue to keep fighting the good fight even after we've been set free. Paul did, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And have you noticed, if you're any student of history of the Bible, have you noticed this recurring theme? Sometimes when people are set free, they don't know how to handle it. Think about it. Sometimes when people are set free, they just don't know how to handle it, so they jump right back into slavery. Isn't that what the Israelites wanted to do when they left Egypt? They get out there and then they say, oh, it's terrible, we've been brought out here to die, we should have stayed slaves in Egypt. They didn't know how to handle freedom. Well, 
It's my understanding that some of the slaves during the Civil War, after they were freed at the end of that, it's my understanding some of them went right back to the same master, same condition, same situation. They didn't know how to handle freedom. And folks, I gotta tell you, some Christians don't know how to handle their freedom. Second Peter chapter two, verses 20 through 22, some of them will return to the mud and the vomit they were in before because they don't understand the price that was paid and the freedom they enjoy. Following on in American history came World War I, where those who were free, such as America and others, fought to free others who were still being enslaved to evil reigns of tyranny. That's a good illustration for us as New Testament Christians as well, because we as Christians who have been set free from the law of sin and death, we've been set free from having to worry about going to hell because of the victory of Jesus Christ. We have freedom in Christ. Paul wrote that many times. He wrote it in Galatians and other times. We have this freedom in Christ. So it's our responsibility to fight for the freedom of others who are still enslaved to sin. Just like in World War I. Those who were free fought for the freedom of others and we must do the same. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. You see, we're in a daily war for the souls of men and there's no room for spectators, SOS 2019. You know what spectators in a war, you know what another word for spectators in a war is? Casualties. War is neither comfortable or convenient. War is costly, it's nasty, it's painful. You know, as we were, doing, as we were celebrating communion just a few minutes ago, I, I sat right there and I got to really wanting to focus in on Christ and I stopped and thought about the scourging. And I thought about something I hadn't really thought about this way before. You know from depictions like the movie The Passion and all that that the scourging is, you know, a whip with all kinds of ends on it and bone or glass and every time it, it, it locks on it just rips you open, right? right to, it just rips you wide open. And they scourged this poor man till he was nothing but a bloody pulp on the pavement. But then, then, when they put him on that cross, Think about this, as you're whipping this way and you're ripping the flesh horizontally east to west, then you put him on that, that cross and they used the worst lumber they could find because it was trash lumber because the guy was gonna die. And every time Jesus had to breathe, he couldn't breathe unless he went up. You know what that did to those, those rips sideways? Every time he went up and down to get a breath on that cross, you know what it did to those rips that were sideways? It ripped them this way. Six hours of that, war. It's not comfortable. War is hard. It's costly. You don't think so, ask Jesus. War, to maintain this freedom, is not always comfortable. It's not easy to tell people as we try to free others who are still enslaved, we as a free people, it's not easy to tell other people, you're going to hell if you don't repent. They don't like to hear that. It's not easy. It's not comfortable or convenient to point out the truth about false teaching that so many are engulfed in, Mark 7, 5 through 13. It is not comfortable to stand up against the absurdity of atheism, the ugliness of selfishness, or the abominable immorality of our culture. It's not easy, but it's something we've got to do if we're going to set others free like we've been set. Then in American history came World War II. Sneak attack, Sunday morning, December the 7th, 1942. Just like the sneak attack on the Twin Towers, September 11th, 2001. 
Sneak attack, just like Satan, your enemy, the devil who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's sneaky. We must be prepared to fight off his sneak attacks on a daily basis if we would maintain that freedom which Jesus came and fought so hard to obtain for us. I want to close with this illustration. The author is anonymous. I have no idea who wrote it. Please listen carefully. On July the 4th, 1884, the people of France presented to the Minister of the United States in Paris, in Paris the Statue of Liberty. It was given to the United States as a birthday present symbolizing their friendship and the liberty citizens enjoy under a free form of government. The statue represents a proud woman in a loose robe that falls in graceful folds to the pedestal on which she stands. In her right hand, she holds a great torch raised high in the air, and in her left arm, she grasps a tablet bearing the date of the Declaration of Independence. A crown with huge spikes, like sun rays, rests on her head. At her feet lies a shackle, symbolizing the overthrow of tyranny. This great statue, a symbol of freedom, has withstood many storms over time. She still stands, her torch held high, lighting the way for millions to freedom. Second paragraph. There is another Statue of Liberty. It is made of wood. It was not erected in friendship, but in anger and with hatred. It was the cross. And on that cross was nailed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His crown was a crown of thorns. His robe was gambled for by Roman soldiers. Christ died for you and I on that cross, but it didn't end there, thank God. That cross was only the beginning for Christ rose triumphantly over sin and death. The cross, too, has withstood the storms of time, yet remains today a symbol of freedom, pointing the way to heaven. And the word of God is the torch that lights the way. As the nails were driven through Jesus' feet, the shackles of sin were broken. And now Christ stands with arms outstretched, still lighting the way for millions to freedom. From sin. Since the Declaration of Independence was signed on July the 4th, 1776, and the initial battle was then fought and won at terrible cost to obtain our freedom, generation after generation of those born, again, of those born into the freedom that we have in America have been called upon to fight to maintain that freedom the freedom they were given by others' blood sacrifices. Since Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, at unimaginable personal cost and sacrifice, came and declared that he was here to set us free, to set us at liberty. Since then, and when he went on to win that initial battle, when he was resurrected from the dead, generation after generation of Christians, have had the opportunity to be born again 
and live under the freedom that Jesus paid for. This morning, your own personal declaration of independence from sin and Satan starts when you decide to come to and to live in Christ. Accepting his victory on your behalf to set you free as you are baptized, born again of the water and the spirit into Christ, just as the scriptures demand. However, be warned. Be very, very solemnly warned. Once you have taken advantage of that tremendously costly freedom that Jesus Christ fought and gave everything and died and rose again to obtain for you, there will be more battles you will have to fight. The enemy's not going to just let you go. You are going to have to fight to maintain that freedom, to not let the world pull you back in, to not let sin and Satan pull you back in. You're going to have to fight to maintain your freedom. There will be civil wars. There will be sneak attacks, because that's who the enemy is. It was that way for Jesus. But you are guaranteed victory. Praise God, you are guaranteed victory if only you stay faithful in and fighting for King Jesus according to his commandments. You're guaranteed the victory. As long as you may keep up the good fight like Paul did. This morning, if you've had enough, if you like the colonists, if you've suffered long enough, if life has beat you up long enough, if you've lived as a slave to sin long enough, if you would declare your own independence today from sin and death by being baptized into Christ, or if you're somebody who's already done that and you have that victory, but you just need strength in those daily struggles to maintain that freedom that Christ fought so you could obtain. If any of those needs are yours, please come to the front as we stand.